Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Year of Plenty podcast. I hope all of you are having an amazing day so far. I'm your host, Poli Wieland, and I'm super excited for this week's episode. So today I have another solo episode for you guys. Just me, no other foodies, no guests. Today's episode is all about bone broth. This topic I have been, you know, wanting to cover for a while now. And over the last couple of weeks, I've been, you know, really going down a rabbit hole researching it. And I think this episode, you know, will help a lot of us really understand this traditional food a little better. Especially since, you know, over the last couple of years, bone broth has really blown up. And it's really become one of those superfoods that a lot of people in the health community are talking about. So before I get into all the details, though, let me just go over a quick overview for this episode. Some of the topics I cover are the culinary difference between bone broth, regular broth, and stock. Then I'll be talking about some of the health benefits of bone broth. Next, I will go into some of the food history surrounding broths and uh, soups and whatnot. I will also explain which ingredients you will need to make your own broth and what some of the cooking utensils are that you're going to need or some of the kitchen utensils. And then at the end, I will give you some you know, insight into how you can store your broth long term so that you have it available whenever you want it, pretty much. So let's get to it. All right. A relatively confusing topic I want to talk about first is the difference between, you know, bone broth, regular broth, and stock. So the main question I had here was, you know, what are the main differences between them? Are they just different names for the same thing or what? Mostly because, you know, all three of them are savory liquids that, you know, can be found as ingredients in many other recipes for like soups and stews and braises and whatnot. And what I found out is that they're not really the same thing, but, you know, they have a lot of similarities and they're really just minor details. But I'll go over them now. In the culinary world, there seem to be three factors that, you know, must be considered. They are the cooking time, the ingredients, and, you know, the seasoning. So let's start with regular broth. What is it? Broth, the one that you've probably had at home or that your grandma's probably made for you sometime, is made by simmering meat and vegetables in water. It could include some bones as well, but, you know, that's not like one of the main ingredients, really. The big difference here, though, is the cooking time. Broth is usually done in anywhere from 45 minutes to 2 hours, so relatively short. And it is usually seasoned as well, so it's got flavor to it. And by flavor, I mean, you know, not just the flavor from the actual ingredients like the meat and veggies, but also, you know, from added herbs or, you know, from added seasonings and added spices and whatnot. The finished product then is a thin and flavorful liquid. It can then, you know, be eaten by itself or it's just used as an ingredient or a base for other foods, like I said earlier. Now, stock, on the other hand, is a little different. Stock is made specifically by simmering animal bones and vegetables. There could be some meat attached to the bones, you know, uh, but, you know, meat isn't an integral part of stock like it is in regular broth. Stock also has a much, much longer cooking time than broth or than the normal broth. It is usually cooked anywhere from two to six hours. Also, it is usually left unseasoned. This is because stock is usually or commonly used for sauces, gravies, braises, and stews. It's like a base ingredient. And you don't want to have a stock, you know, that has a super intense flavor because that might mess up the flavor that you're trying to get from your soup and whatnot. And then, of course, due to the longer cooking time, it'll have a much thicker uh, texture in comparison to the regular broth. However, you know, it's not as thick and gelatinous as a good bone broth, which is something I'll get to now. So what the heck is bone broth? Well, it can be seen as a hybrid of regular broth and stock, really. 
I think just by the name alone, we can conclude that the main ingredient here are animal bones, hence it's called bone broth. People typically use beef or chicken bones for bone broth, but, you know, it surely isn't limited to the bones of these two animals. Personally, I've always wanted to make bone broth out of, you know, the bones of a wild animal, but I really think I'm going to wait until I kill, a, you know, a big elk sometime that's been living outside in nature its whole life and it wasn't exposed to any weird foods or, you know, weird chemicals, really. So even though bones are a necessity in bone broth, people also use other animal parts like the tendons, the skin, the feet, and the ligaments and whatnot. They're also added at times. It really depends on how you are going to make it. And then you could even add some vegetables, you know, which might be beneficial, which I will get into later in the episode. Now, what really separates bone broth from stock and regular broth is a much, much longer cooking time. It is usually cooked anywhere from 12 to 24 hours. Some people simmer it for even longer than that. And since it has the lengthiest cooking time out of all of the other ones, it's also going to have the thickest consistency. This is due to the collagen-rich gelatin that is extracted from the bones. And, you know, as far as seasoning goes, well, people do it in many different ways. Some like to flavor it and some don't. Again, this will be really up to you. I usually leave mine unseasoned and then I season it when I'm ready to eat it. By, you know, not seasoning it, you can really use it similarly to stock in, you know, sauces and braises and other recipes, which is kind of cool. So there you have it. I hope this clarifies the differences and the confusion around, you know, regular broth, stock, and bone broth. All right, one major reason why I personally like to consume bone broth is that I'm trying to use the entire animal more often. It's this whole idea of eating nose to tail that I've talked about in other episodes. I know this is something that, you know, sounds strange to most people, but I guess due to my hunting background, I'm very comfortable with the idea of, you know, eating organ meats and other parts of the animal that most people probably wouldn't regard as food or as edible. And then I also really try to avoid, you know, store-bought bone broth or broth in general or even soups for that matter. First of all, I think, you know, it's way, way more fun to make it yourself. And it, you know, going through this whole process, like I always talk about, is, you know, really gives you the awareness and appreciation for your food, in my opinion. But I also think that store-bought broth is questionable. I read a book called Nourishing Broth by Sally Fallon Morell and Kayla T. Daniel. In their book, they explained that most store-bought stock and broth today aren't really real anymore. Instead, the companies use uh, lab-produced meat flavors. And one of these, you know, chemicals that is often used is monosodium glutamate, or MSG. I'm sure you've heard of it. MSG, you know, is, has a really strong meaty flavor. And it's also the reason why store-bought stocks and broth cubes have replaced traditional homemade broths in the kitchen. It's just, you know, a lot more economical to produce. And, you know, it can be stored for a long time, so it's widely available. But, you know, actually, many people consider MSG as a possible neurotoxin. I haven't looked too deep into this, but I'm going to try to avoid it anyway. Especially since I can just make my own broth at home. So why not? All right. So a big question I wanted to answer for myself was why there's such a hype around bone broth in the health industry nowadays. You know, over the last couple of years, the call for consuming bone broth has really increased. I mean, there are even restaurants and food trucks selling bone broth in a cup and selling it as a superfood. And it's also, you know, become a staple of ancestral diets like the paleo diet. Now, if we look at hunter-gatherer tribes and culinary traditions, bones have been used in cooking practices for a long time. Could this be due to some health benefits? 
Well, sadly, the science and research on bone broth in particular is very limited. A big claim a lot of health advocates make is that bone broth is rich in minerals. For example, it's often recommended as a source of calcium to people who, you know, can't really tolerate milk products. They say this because, you know, bones are rich in these minerals like calcium. So the bone broth, you know, must also be rich in them as well, right? Sadly, here again, the research that is currently available is kind of suggesting otherwise. And I think it's important to talk about this. So let's dive into a little science here. The earliest study on bone broth I could find dates back to 1934. And I know, I know, this was a long time ago. But, you know, this doesn't mean we need to throw it out, really. So this study was conducted by Robert McKenzie and Elsie Widowson who, from you know, my understanding, made many vital contributions to the early field of nutrition science. In their study, what they did was analyze the nutritional composition of bone broth or bone and vegetable broth. Their research found that broth that was only made from bones was a poor source of minerals. And interestingly, the broth that was made with both bones and vegetables had more minerals in it than the one that was made with just bones. So this kind of suggests that the addition of veggies added more minerals to the broth and, you know, might be beneficial, at least in this specific research scenario. Then another study I found from 2017 that was published in the journal Food and Nutrition Research found very similar results. The researchers found that, you know, bone broth did not yield a ton of minerals either. For example, the average calcium and magnesium levels in the broths that they tested did not exceed 5% of the daily recommended values. So again, as far as mineral content goes, bone broth might not be you know, the richest source in this superfood that everyone's claiming it is. But interestingly, what the results did show was that lowering the pH with an acid, like vinegar for example, really increased the extraction of calcium and magnesium from the ingredients. Also, a longer cooking time yielded significantly higher levels in the finished broth. And this is actually kind of important because traditionally vinegar is added during the cooking process of bone broth. And also, a good bone broth, like I said, is usually cooked for at least 24 hours. Sadly, both these studies didn't even come close to simmering the bones for 24 hours. So we don't actually have scientific evidence about the mineral content extracted from bone broths that were cooked for 24 hours, at least that I'm not aware of. So that's something that really should be done, in my opinion, because then, you know, we'll actually know if cooking it for a longer period of time makes bone broth a really rich source of minerals like calcium or magnesium or whatnot. However, you know, bone broth has other health benefits, and it's not just minerals that you could potentially get from it. Several experts suggest that bone broth can lead to better skin health, boost the immune system, improve mood and sleep, as well as metabolic and cardiovascular health. These are just a few of the potential health benefits, and you know, most of these health benefits seem to be attributed to the proteins, amino acids, and other compounds in the broth. So not really the mineral content in there. If you want to take a deep dive into the actual science behind these health claims, check out an article in the show notes. It's called The Bountiful Benefits of Bone Broth by Chris Kresser. It's a really good one. I really enjoyed it and I learned a lot from it. And honestly, the unique protein and amino acids found in the bone broth are what really got me turned on to it. Let me explain why. And it's going to get a little scientific here, but I think it's important to clarify this. So every living organism is made up of proteins. Most of you probably know that already. And these proteins are made up of amino acids. So different combinations of these amino acids pretty much form the proteins. 
Now, there are many different types of amino acids, and I'm sure you've heard of some of them. If you've ever been in like a supplement store, you'll undoubtedly have, you know, seen packages that say BCAA, which stands for branch chain amino acids, or another product that might have said essential amino acids. Broadly, these amino acids are grouped into two categories, essential and non-essential amino acids. So essential amino acids are the ones that our body cannot synthesize by itself. So they kind of have to be obtained through our diet. Non-essential amino acids, on the other hand, are the ones that our body can synthesize by itself. That's why, you know, many people don't really worry about getting uh, these non-essential amino acids from the diet. However, there's a third category now called conditional amino acids, and they are usually non-essential, meaning that, you know, our body produces it ourselves, but they can become essential during certain times like illness and stress. A lot of people claim that our unhealthy Western lifestyle and diets these days kind of make it likely that these conditional amino acids are fundamentally essential and that we need to get them from our diet. So you might be wondering why I'm telling you all this. Well, the collagen protein found in bones and cartilage of animals is a great source of some of these conditional amino acids like lysine and proline, for example. When you simmer bones, the collagen protein actually turns into gelatin, the same ingredient that's in jello. So this is also why a bone broth that's made from quality bones and done the right way is going to turn into a jello-like consistency. Now, even though during the cooking process the collagen is turned into the gelatin, you still get the amino acids. And the one I'm really interested in is glycine. So why do I care about glycine so much? Well, let me tell you. Like I said, glycine is a conditional amino acid. And again, this means our bodies can produce it, but our bodies uses it in many different ways. And it seems like we might not produce enough glycine to sustain our bodily processes. I found an academic article in the Journal of Bioscience that suggests that our body produces only about 3 grams of glycine per day. But the article also goes on to say that this falls significantly short of what our bodies need for all metabolic uses. So they suggest that we also get glycine from our diet. You see, the reason I want to get glycine in my diet is because I eat meat. So what does eating meat have to do with glycine? Well, the muscle meats most of us are consuming these days are not very high in glycine. But they are high in another amino acid called methionine. This amino acid is also important for our bodies, so we need to get it. However, there is a growing concern about the balance of methionine and glycine in our bodies. Mostly because consuming too much methionine can potentially deplete our glycine levels. Which, as we learned, are you know already limited if we don't get it from our diet. I found a food database, that'll be in the show notes of course, that shows a bunch of foods with their glycine to methionine balance for you guys, and you can check it out if you're interested. I went through it a couple times, and you know, it's, it's pretty interesting. So you see, one problem at this point is that we don't really know how much glycine is really needed to balance things out. However, it is a fact that methionine consumption can deplete the glycine. And historically, humans have been consuming a lot of glycine in their diets by, you know, eating more than just the muscle meats that are available in most grocery stores today. This is another reason people in the health community are now advocating this whole idea of nose-to-tail eating, so that we get a balance of all these amino acids and other minerals and, you know, components that might be, in the, might be locked in the whole animal and not just the muscle meat. So as you can tell, I'm currently a fan of getting some glycine from my diet especially since most of the alleged health benefits of bone broth that I talked about earlier seem to be attributed to this specific amino acid. But glycine isn't the only compound that you know might be beneficial and that we can find in bone broth. 
There are many more. And if you want to get the collagen, the gelatin, and the glycine and some of these other components or compounds from your food, then eating bone broth is one of the ways to do this. Now, before we move on, though, I do want to touch on some of the research I found about the potential toxicity of bone broth. If you Google the health benefits of bone broth, you will also stumble upon several websites claiming that bone broth is full of lead and potentially toxic. This lead scare stems from a study conducted in the UK and published in 2013. And, you know, from now on, I'm just going to refer to this study as the UK study to make things easier. While the researchers found that broth made from different parts of organic chicken did indeed have high levels of lead. The results that they found were 9.5 micrograms per liter for broth made with skin and cartilage, 7.01 micrograms per liter for broth made with bones, 2.3 micrograms per liter for broth made with meat, and 0.89 micrograms per liter for the lead found in tap water cooked by itself. So that was the control, you know. And yeah, 9.5 and 7.01 micrograms per liter, you know, are definitely levels to worry about. Interestingly, health experts that, you know, were critical of this study and were kind of speaking for or speaking in defense of bone broth were kind of pointing out that um, that these levels found, found in the bone broth were, you know, pretty high, but they were lower than the EPA limit for lead in tap water, which, by the way, is 15 micrograms per liter. The fact that the EPA allows that much lead contamination in our tap water is questionable by itself. But, you know, this doesn't really justify the high levels found in the bone broth in the UK study. But still, something to think about. Instead, I think a much better way or a much better defense of bone broth is to actually look at the details of this UK study. I found several articles that make good arguments for why this study wasn't well conducted, mostly because it gives a little insight into many important factors that you know, that should have been considered. Like what kind of cookware did the researchers use, or where the chickens were from, and even what the chickens ate and drank, as well as what were the living conditions. None of that was really mentioned in the article or, you know, looked at in the study. And I think that's important because, you know, these chickens could have been eating contaminated food or drinking water that had a high amount of lead in it, which, you know, of course would have led to higher levels of lead in their body. We just don't know from this study. This is why I think this UK study needs to be taken with a grain of salt. Actually, if you want to take a deep dive into this, there's a great article by the Weston A. Price Foundation that really breaks down the study and kind of mentions what some of the downsides of it were. If you are someone that's worried about this, then I definitely encourage you to read it and, you know, take a deep dive and then make your own decision. And, you know, I also found other studies that have been conducted and they actually found very small amounts of lead in the bone broth. One of these studies is the one that I mentioned earlier in the episode when talking about all the mineral contents in bone broth. Well, they also tested bone broth for lead levels and found very small amounts. They then concluded that the risk of ingesting heavy metals from bone broth was minimal. And then there's another research study that was published in the journal Food Additives and Contamination which, you know, also revealed that there's very little lead in the bone broths that they tested. And then finally, due to this whole lead scare from the UK study, uh, the Three Stone Hearth Co-op in Berkeley, uh, they make a lot of bone broths and whatnot. You know, they sent in their broth that was made from grass-fed beef and pasture-raised chickens, and they got it tested for lead by the National Food Lab. And they also, you know, found no detectable levels of lead in their broths. So clearly, as you can tell, there is debate about the subject matter. 
And I think more studies should definitely be done. But I also think that the study from the UK that have, that found the high amounts of lead, it's it's still important. Even though it had these flaws, we shouldn't throw that one out. Mostly because it raises interesting questions of lead contamination in our food supply. I found some information by the European Food Safety Authority, and they claim that most of our dietary lead exposure seems to come from eating cereal products. This is kind of concerning to me because if you think about it, you know, so many products out in the market are cereal-based. I think it's kind of sad that, you know, these heavy metals like lead are present in our food supply and kind of have made their way into our food and drink. And this is why I also always encourage people to really think about quality as well as, you know, the source of their food. And this is also true for the bones you get when making your broth. That is exactly why I wanted to share this section on lead toxicity with you guys. So if you make bone broth, you know, I really think it's important that you really do some research into where your bones are coming from. Personally, I'm not really scared away by all of this. People have been consuming broths for a very, very long time. And, you know, it's a traditional staple of many cuisines around the world. All right, that's all I had on health benefits and whatnot. And I do got to throw a disclaimer in here. I'm not a health professional. I'm not an expert. I just liked researching this stuff. And, you know, I, I did look at a lot of articles and blog posts by people who really know their stuff. And, you know, these are the conclusions I've come to. If you want to find out more, like I said, more, I'll put the studies in the show notes on my website, which is www.theyearofplenty.com. Uh, you can also just send me a direct message on Instagram, for example, which is at Wheeland, all one word, and I can email them to you so you can look at them yourself. All right, let's move on. Enough on bone broth and health. Let's get into some food history. If you read online articles and blog posts on the history of bone broth, which are usually from companies that are producing bone broth, most of them will tell you the same story. A story of our ancient ancestors, you know, using bones to make a delicious broth that was super healthy and whatnot. But, you know, I figured it would make a lot more sense to kind of look into how long people have actually been using boiling techniques in their cooking. So most of the sources I found stated that boiling liquids wasn't really a thing until somewhere between 5,000 and 9,000 years ago which is still pretty freaking long. This is because it was believed that boiling was not a cooking technique until the invention of waterproof and heatproof containers, which kind of makes sense. But an archaeological discovery reported in 2012 in China might have thrown a total wrench into this theory. So archaeologists from Harvard found a 20,000-year-old pot in a cave in China that was used over fire. Now, whether this means that, you know, they were actually boiling liquids with it, we don't know. However, this discovery kind of suggests that the invention of waterproof and heatproof containers might have been far older than we previously believed, which theoretically means that these people could have been making broths and soups a long, long time ago. But according to some anthropologists and archaeologists, boiling as a cooking technique could have been even far older than that. So what they have suggested is that our Paleolithic ancestors deployed a strategy called stone boiling. This is a strategy that involves placing stones near a heat source like a fire. And once the stones are hot enough from the fire, they would have been thrown into water. Which then, you know, would have caused the heat from the stones to be transferred to the liquid, causing it to warm up and eventually boil. But then again, you know, how did they do it without waterproof containers or heatproof containers? Well, there's several theories about that. For example, some anthropologists believe that people could have just dug a hole, lined it with animal skin, and, you know, used the hot rocks to heat up the water that way. The animal skin would have kind of had a waterproofing property to keep the liquid from leaking. 
Now, a big question is why would our ancestors have wanted to boil foods if they could have just, you know, roasted them over the fire, right? And I kind of thought about this, and this, these are kind of the conclusions I've come to. While boiling kind of permits fuller use of the animal plants, you know, this could have really expanded the types of foods that our ancestors could have eaten, like bones, for example. They could not have been eaten if they were roasted, really. Maybe, you know, marrow bones. You could have extracted the marrow out of them, but then you had to break them down and all that. But boiling, on the other hand, you know, would have really allowed them to extract some nutritional values from the animal parts that could not have been consumed any other way. And the same obviously goes for plants. You know, some plants were inedible in their natural state, but could have been consumed after they were boiled. Take acorns, for example. They are edible. And yeah, I'm sure you, many of you didn't know that, and it's something I've been wanting to make forever. But you know, they're really only edible after the tannins have been removed through boiling. Now, even though we're still speculating about how our Paleolithic ancestors, you know, several thousand years ago, were able to boil foods, it is clear that many ancient civilizations going back thousands of years did indeed make broths and soups and whatnot. While doing the research for this episode, I came across an amazing discovery. Archaeologists have found a preserved ancient soup in China again that dates back 2,400 years. What they found was a small bronze vessel in a tomb that contained the soup, 2,400 years old, and it was still in its liquid form. That's just insane. I have no idea how it preserved that long, but I think that's pretty cool. We also know that broth and soup, you know, was made during ancient Roman Greece. The Spartans, for example, had a dish called melas zomos, or black broth. Some of the ingredients here were bones and blood. And I'm sure that's something most of us would probably never touch today. Furthermore, we also see, you know, accounts of broths and soups in ancient stories. Have you ever heard of the ancient playwright Aristophanes? He wrote a play called The Frogs. In it, Dionysus asks Heracles, quote, Have you ever felt a sudden lust for soup? And Heracles answered, Soup? Yes, 10,000 times, end quote. So it seems as though even Heracles was a big fan of boiled, you know, foods like soups and broths. Okay, let's see what else I got history-wise. Oh yeah, so I really wanted to find an old recipe for broth, but I couldn't find much online, so I decided to ask Meve Lestrange. So I asked her on Twitter, actually, um, if she had any historical recipes, because she's a culinary archaeologist that I have followed on Twitter for a while now. Definitely check her Twitter profile out. It's at culinaryarch1, so culinary, A-R-C-H-A-E-1. And she really posts a lot of interesting stuff in food history, and I always love to read it. So, like I said, definitely check it out. Well, she also sent me a recipe of beef broth from a book called The Medieval Kitchen by Adol Reden, Francois Saban, and Silvano Cerventi. I probably butchered all those names. Well, the recipe she sent me calls for 800 grams of beef neck bones or shin of beef, 900 grams of short ribs or flank, 4 to 5 carrots, three or four small turnips, seven to eight small leeks or three large leeks, one large celery stalk, including the leaves, one small bunch of parsley, one large whole onion, four cloves, three bay leaves, which I freaking love, and one scant tablespoon of whole black peppercorns and some salt. Now, this recipe had a ton of ingredients, which I thought was super interesting because, you know, I expected far less from a medieval recipe. And what also really surprised me 
was that they called for beef bones, even though, you know, this wasn't a recipe specifically for uh, bone broth. It was just a recipe for beef broth. And you see, one of the reasons I think broths have such a long history and were used in, you know, making broths and soups and all that for super long is that it really allows us to turn food leftovers into a delicious meal, especially in the cold winter months. I can only imagine people throughout history using leftover bones, meat, and vegetable scraps to make delicious broth. You know, food wasn't always readily available as it is nowadays. So it, you know, kind of makes sense to waste practically nothing back then. And it still makes sense to waste practically nothing today, by the way. Okay, now that we went over some food history, let's get a little more into the main ingredients you will need to make your own bone broth. A big question most of you probably have is what sort of bones to use. Well, this really depends on what kind of bone broth you're making. But no matter which animal bones you use, I think you should use the highest quality bones you can get. To me personally, high quality bones come from humanely raised animals that were fed their natural diets and, you know, even pasture raised. Sadly, you probably won't find these kind of bones at, you know, any of the big grocery stores out there. So try to source them from a local butcher or a local farm. And I think even Whole Foods, which, you know, is pretty much in every city now, or in a lot of them at least, they have pretty high quality bones as well. But yeah, ideally you'll know exactly where those bones came from. This is something you can easily find out by just asking the butcher. So obviously I said you can make bone broth from many different animals or animal parts. If you want to make a chicken bone broth, then you can just use the bones. Or if you don't, you know, it's small enough that you can use the entire carcass. But some cultures even add chicken feet and wings, which is something you could do. And I've never made uh, chicken bone broth, but you know, I heard it's really delicious. What I've personally made a lot is beef bone broth, mostly because that's what's really available at the butcher that I go to. Now, for beef bone broth, people usually use marrow bones, beef knuckle bones, oxtail bones, or even short ribs. And like we saw in that recipe earlier from medieval times, they also used the short rib bones, so that's pretty cool. And I've also seen recipes that use uh, cow feet in addition to all the bones. And this is because, you know, all these feet of animals or of most of the animals are really a, a rich source of uh, cartilage. Finally, if you want to make a pig bone broth, you can try using rib bones and neck bones. So these kind of bones are usually used since they're rich in connective tissue. You want the connective tissue because that contains all the collagen, amino acids, and other compounds that I talked about earlier. And like I said, you don't have to just use the bones. They are the main ingredient to bone broth. But you could also add some veggies. Common ones are onions, celery, and carrots. And here, you know, if you, if you choose to use vegetables, you don't have to use the best parts of the plants either. You could use veggies that might not be super fresh anymore. It's a great way to reuse them or to use them instead of throwing them away. And instead of, you know, throwing away certain parts you usually wouldn't eat, you can use them to make the bone broth as well. I'm talking about parts like carrot tops, garlic and onion skins and ends, celery butts, you know, all these reject parts can really be added to bone broth and still have a lot of minerals and, and health benefits to them. And finally, the very last ingredient that I would always recommend adding to your bone broth is some apple cider vinegar. A little bit of acidity from the vinegar can really help extract more of those minerals and nutrients from the bones and the other ingredients. So that's what I always do. I always just add a little vinegar before I begin the simmering process. Okay, next I want to touch on some of the kitchen utensils you're going to have to gather to make your bone broth. You can either make it in a pot on your stovetop, you know, like in a saucepan or whatnot, 
which is something most of you probably already have, and that's nice because then you don't have to buy it. The only downside to that is that you'll have to keep the stove on for the entire time. So if you go this route, maybe make it during a time where you're going to be around and awake. You know, safety first, guys and gals. You don't want your house to catch on fire while you're asleep. Now, if you don't want to stand in the kitchen all day, which I can totally understand, you can also just use a slow cooker or a crock pot. I usually use a slow cooker. And honestly, I think that is really the least hassle. But I've also, you know, read recipes that call for an instant pot. This will also drastically shorten your cooking time. But I, I have read that this might not be the best option if you really want all the, miner- all the minerals and, you know, other health compounds and all the health benefits from your bone broth that I talked about earlier. Also, and this is important, whichever cookware you choose, you got to make sure it's a safe one. There's a lot of cookware out there, including, you know, crockpots and slow cookers that could leach, like, potentially toxic compounds into your food. And these compounds are in the actual material of the product. But, you know, sometimes the coating on them or whatnot might not be of high quality or might get scratched or, you know, there's many ways that those products have and can leach uh, toxic metals and whatnot into the food that you cook with them. So just do a little research on the cookware you're going to use. It's as easy as that. After you have chosen your cooking vessel, you will also need a large strainer and some mason jars with lids. Once your bone broth is cooled, you will use the strainer to take out any leftover bones and veggies and then just fill up the mason jars. All right, now that you know some of the common ingredients for bone broth and also you know which kitchen utensils you're going to use, let me quickly go over the cooking process. So bone broth is really simple to make. The process usually goes like this. You're going to place the bones into a large stock pot or slow cooker and cover it with water. Then you add about two tablespoons of apple cider vinegar to the water prior to cooking. And this is really going to help pull those minerals and nutrients out that I talked about earlier. Then fill your pot or slow cooker or whatever cookware you have with a filtered water or, you know, good tap water. Leave uh, plenty of room for water to boil though. Then you're going to heat it up, bring it to a boil, but then reduce it down to a simmer for at least six hours. You're probably going to see like scum rise to the top. Um, I've always, you know, removed it. A lot of people say you should. I'm not sure though. Maybe you guys know more about that. I'd love to hear your opinions on that. And yeah, maybe next time I won't do that. I'm pretty sure it doesn't really make a difference. All right, and then you're going to cook it slow and low, meaning, you know, for a long time and at low heat. The chicken bones can usually cook for like 24 hours, but beef bones, you know, they're bigger and whatnot, they can go for way longer. And then, of course, you can also add your vegetables, such as the onions, garlics, carrots, and celery for, you know, added nutritional value and flavor and whatnot. So this is just a quick overview of the process, but like I said, it's really simple. And every recipe is a little different. Just go find one online, try it out, and, you know, see how you like it. Okay, let's move on. I also want to give you some insight into storing your broth long term so that you can use it whenever you feel like it. But first I want to tell you a story about a giant mistake I made when I tried to, you know, make a bunch of broth and store it long term. Because I don't really want this to happen to you guys. So the first time I made a giant batch of bone broth for long term storage, I got about 15 one pint mason jars in total, I'd say. Well, I took these and, you know, put them in the back of my refrigerator thinking that this was enough to store the broth long term. I don't know why I was so stupid, but, you know, after about five weeks, I just realized that I never actually tried to find out how to really store or properly store the bone broth. So when, you know, that realization hit me, I immediately grabbed my phone and started looking things up. 
And guess what? I found a lot of different information. Some said you can't really store bone broth for longer than three days in the refrigerator. And then others said you can store it in there for up to six months. There were so many different answers that I actually ended up tossing some of the broth. Because, you know, I just couldn't find an indefinite answer. And I really hated myself for this because I hate wasting food. But, you know, I was also not going to risk getting sick from it. Because broths and soups, you know, can be a breeding ground for bacteria if they're not stored properly. So, you know, due to this unfortunate experience, I always freeze bone broth now if I want to keep it long term. So once the uh, broth is cooled after the cooking process, I just fill it in the jars, put the lid on and freeze it. But watch out. If you use glass mason jars or any container that is, make sure to leave it like about an inch of headspace, maybe a little more even. That's important because, you know, once the, the liquid freezes, it's going to expand. And leaving some of this headspace is going to prevent the glass from cracking. So freezing is the easy part, right? But how do you really thaw it out? If you're using glass jars, you have to be a little careful when thawing the broth. I usually thaw the broth in a hot water bath. But before that, I will have the glass jar sit at a room temperature for a bit until the lids can be removed. So to thaw using the hot water bath technique, I take a saucepan, I then place the jar in it and fill it up with cold water. It's got to be cold so that it covers about half of the jar. Then I turn on the heat to like a medium or low temperature. The cold water and low temps is super important because the glass jars don't, you know, do well with uh, fast temperature changes and, you know, could shatter if the temperatures change too fast. Alright, so once you heat up the broth using this hot water technique and it's back to its liquid form, you can take out the jar with the liquid broth in it. But, you know, you gotta watch out, it's gonna be hot, so maybe, I don't know, use something that, you know, will protect your fingers. Then you're gonna fill this broth into a second saucepan, and then you just bring that liquid in there to a, a boil again, just to make sure it's properly heated once. And, you know, then you let it cool a little bit, and then it's good to, and ready to consume. This might sound a little confusing and hard, but once you've done it a couple times, it's, you know, it's super easy and you'll figure it out real fast. Now, if you don't want to go through this whole hot water bath process, I've also read that you can just thaw it overnight in the refrigerator. That's probably a lot easier. And in the show notes on my website, which again is www.theyearofplenty.com, you're going to find a link to a blog post that really explains this uh, thawing process in detail. Oh, and I almost forgot, another cool trick I read about but really haven't tried out yet is to freeze your broth in ice cube trays. I think this is a genius idea because, you know, it really allows you to use small amounts in your cooking. And then you might also be wondering how long you can really freeze broth for. Well, according to the USDA, broth uh, shouldn't be frozen any longer than two to three months. So there you have it. Okay, so I feel like I covered a lot about bone broth, and this episode's probably a lot longer again than I wanted it to be. But I think all this information is, you know, important. And I want to conclude with some ways to actually eat or drink the broth. So like I said, you can use it as a base for soups, stews, gravies, braises, and all that stuff. But what I often like to do is just to sip the bone broth like a cup of coffee. Since I usually don't season my broth initially, I can use it in many different ways. And one of my favorite ways to drink the broth is to heat it up and mix in some heavy cream and herbs. But I've also mixed in, you know, coconut cream and turmeric. That was super tasty. You can really be creative here. Just experiment. That's what really makes it so fun. Use the ingredients that you desire, that you want to try out. And, you know, eventually you'll find something that you really like. All right, that's all I have for you guys today. I hope this is 
pretty helpful and that, you know, I was able to kind of unearth some of the confusion about bone broth and, you know, hopefully give you some insights into into the history and uh, the health benefits and how to make it and, and what you're going to need to make it and all that. If you like this episode, I encourage you to check out other episodes on the show. Some of you might like are the um, the episode on olive oil or the foodies roundtable I just did with my friends on uh, fermented food. And then, of course, you know, if you get value from these episodes, please like, subscribe, rate, review in your podcast apps. That's always going to help the show, and it's going to help other listeners find it. Right now, the show is available in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and uh, www.theyearofplenty.com. If you uh, go on my website, I have a subscribe page that's going to make that really easy. Otherwise, you know, I have a a, a link that's going to be in the show notes. And this link is going to, you know, take you to all the platforms that you can subscribe to the show on. And it's also going to, you know, make it super easy to listen. So please check that out. And then, like I said, all the articles I talked about, all the studies and whatnot, they're going to be in the extended show notes on my website, which one more time is www.theyearofplenty.com. There you can read them all if you are inclined to do so. But uh, yeah, I really hope you guys like these episodes and I really, really love all your feedback that I've been getting lately and all the reviews and ratings. You know, it's it's always nice to hear from you and that's the only way I can really make this show better. So please keep that up. All right, everyone. Love you all and see you later.